Hey, welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we have a special bonus episode for you today with attorney Todd Blanche. You may have seen Todd's name all over the news recently. He's representing the former president, Donald Trump, in his New York state case, as well as his federal case down here in the Southern District of Florida. Todd is a wonderful lawyer, was at a large New York law firm, and now is on his own uh, representing the former president. He's also represented in the past Paul Manafort, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But you'll see it bleeds into uh, his representation of the former president as well. Todd hasn't given media interviews, hasn't been out there in the press. Uh, so we're very thankful he agreed to sit down and discuss uh, really the origin story of how he got involved in the Trump case and uh, the very political defense representations that he's taken on. So uh, welcome to For the Defense. Here's Todd Blanche next. Thanks. Okay, we're here with Todd Blanche. I'm really excited for this interview. Todd is a a wonderful criminal defense lawyer. You may have seen him in the news lately. We're going to talk uh, not about that case, but about uh, some of his prior cases. And I just want to welcome you to the show, Todd. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, David. So, you know, typically we talk about great trials and trial wins, but it's even better to win pre-trial, which you did in the Paul Manafort case. So I'd like to talk to you about the Paul Manafort case, you were at a, a big uh, law firm in New York when you handled that case, right? Yes, I worked at, I was at Kedwalader, um, and and I, I I got a, I mean, like everybody else, I saw the news that suggested that New York was, the New York County, as opposed to the federal government who had charged um, Mr. Manafort in D.C. and in Virginia, that they were going to indict him, and there was a lot of, of drama around that. And I was at a, a big law firm doing what what all of us do, doing what you do, and 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 was approached um, by by a lawyer who I had worked with for a long time um, as a pro when I was a prosecutor, and asked whether I would be interested in, in representing Mr. Manafort in the New York case, um, not not the federal case. It's interesting because you know we grew up in the federal system. I was a PD. You were a prosecutor in the federal system. You know, it's always interesting to appear in state court when you grew up in in uh, in the federal system. At least in Florida, the state courts down here are it's like going to a cattle call, like a zoo. Oh, I mean, you have David, you're totally right. I will tell you something. The first time I appeared in Manhattan Supreme Court was for that case. I, I had never appeared um, in Manhattan Supreme Court, and and as you probably know. The, the federal court in, in downtown Manhattan is, is right across the street from the state court. And so proximity is, is right there, but it's like a whole nother world. And, and any lawyer that practices and that's, that's listening can probably relate to this. I walk in there and, and had no idea what I was doing. What I did actually, a very quick, funny story. When I, when I did get the case and I knew that Mr. Manafort was going to come get arraigned in Manhattan Supreme Court, I went over just to watch some watch some cases. I mean, you've had a, several guests talk about the value of just going into a courtroom and and seeing what's going on. And and, and I had been a federal prosecutor. I had been a paralegal for seven years at the U.S. Attorney's Office and at the Department of Justice. So I had seen plenty of courtrooms, but never in Manhattan Supreme Court. And I had had a, a, a professor in law school who was a judge. And so I thought to myself, I'll just go over there and I'll watch a, a couple of, of proceedings in front of him. I'll just sit in the back. And I did. And unfortunately, when I walked into the to that to the judge's courtroom, I, I didn't introduce myself. I, it's a public courtroom. We right. do live in America. And I sat in the back and the, the ADA walked out and looked at me very, you know, very suspiciously. And then the defense attorney walked in and looked at me very suspiciously. And then the defendant came out with with two of the two guards. He, he the defendant was incarcerated, and then the defendant looked at me very suspiciously. And I was the only person in the gallery, and I was just there to see what happened. I, you know, I had no agenda. I just want to see how this worked in state court. The judge takes this the stand and he the bench rather, and he doesn't know who I am. I, I went to law school, you know, twenty years earlier. He looks at me suspiciously, and he calls the parties up, and they all start whispering to each other. And then the, the the ADA, the assistant district attorney, came out and asked me who I was. And I mean, 
they really have no right to do that. I'm allowed to sit in a courtroom with Devon Carlos. But it turns out, as I as I as I quickly realized, it, I think it was a, a person who was pleading guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement, and they didn't want anybody in the courtroom, and they thought maybe that I. I Maybe that I was, you know, a defense attorney for a co-defendant or something. So I said to the ADA, I'll just leave. Like, I'm not trying to create a ruckus. And so I did. So that was my first experience, actually, just trying to sit through a proceeding in Manhattan Supreme Court. I I later watched a bunch of a bunch of uh, arraignments and and whatnot. So, yes, it was a whole new world. That is that is a great story. Um, it it is uh, it is funny when when you appear in a, a courtroom like that and everybody's like, who's that guy? Um, so, so, um, you're at the big law firm at the time. It is interesting just as a, as a detour, when I first started in private practice, I don't know, um, it was in the early two thousands, the big firms did not do white collar work. I mean, it was, it was very rare. And now all the big firms have a white collar division and, and, uh, they're all hiring, uh, former prosecutors and former defenders and, and uh, it, it's it's much different market than it used to be. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I think, you know, I, I was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and and most of us, when we leave, go to a kind of a big firm, you know, a, or at least a mid-sized to large firm, because they now have very robust white-collar practices. And it wasn't always like that. Um, and look, I love Kedwalder. I, I still love Kedwalder. I'm not there now because of my, my current representation of of, of, of President Trump, but it, it was a great firm with a really great white collar practice. And they took a chance on, on Mr. Manafort. You know, they really did because he was, he was a very polarizing figure at the time. And, and I think everybody in America, if, well, maybe not everybody in America, but those in America that knew who he was had very strong views of him. And and that's that was a risk, and I, I always was. I still am very grateful for the firm for for letting me do the case. Um, but 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 you're you're totally right. Big firm and like traditional white collar work, or even you know any kind of of, of criminal prosecution is is a, is a recent phenomenon for sure. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that bothered me about the Manafort case, and and it bothers me about the current case that you're you're involved in is. The number of different indictments, right? So Manafort was charged uh, in Virginia, in D.C., and and then of course in state court in New York. And and really, a, as a individual defendant, it's impossible to defend three cases in three different places, three different jurisdictions. He he had the the guts to go to trial and won. Um, but but and I guess that's what formed the basis of your defense in the New York case is the double jeopardy claim, right? No, right, exactly. No, and look, I not to get into the the moral or, or ethical or reasons why we we take cases, but what you said is exactly why I wanted to do that case. And while I'm doing, and that's also why I'm doing the case I'm doing now involving President Trump is that I, I do I do, you know, it did mean something to me that that he had been really put through hell. We're putting aside guilt or innocence for a moment, um, just put through hell in in the D.C. Um, process. He had been indicted in in the Eastern District of Virginia, and then separately indicted in, in in D.C. He had he was put in jail. He was incarcerated, which is quite unusual for somebody charged with the types of crimes he was charged with, and given his where he was in his life. Um, so he he was sitting in prison. He he did go to trial, and he he really did. He hung most of the counts in in the Eastern District of Virginia. The government had put a tremendous amount of pressure on him to cooperate and to plead guilty in D.C. Um, his entire life savings and, 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 and trust that he had left for his children had been seized. And so they really had a and you talk about this a lot in, in, in your podcast, but the power that the government has is, is really extraordinary. And when they choose to you to use it. It's very hard to, you know, it's it's David and Goliath. I think even if you're somebody who's wealthy um, and and had, you know, even had political connections like Mr. Manafort. And so when I saw that that the district attorney in Manhattan was going to indict him um, for the same crimes, I was really, really, really um, offended as a as a as a as a lawyer, right? As someone who had been a prosecutor, you were a a, a federal defender or a public defender. You know, you 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 want to like the system you're working in. You want to be proud of it. You want to be able to say like justice works. Doesn't work every time, 
but it works. You know, overall it works. And when I saw that happen to him, I did. I felt like justice didn't work, and it wasn't working. And and so when I had the opportunity to represent him, um, you know, I leaped at it. Um, and it was funny, like not to get into the the. You know, everybody when he when they knew he was indicted, everybody said there's this unique law in New York, which is different than the federal system and different than most states as it relates to double jeopardy. So double jeopardy, you know, everybody knows what it is. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. But under the federal standard, as the Supreme Court has held, it's it's very difficult for double jeopardy to apply. It really has to be very similar facts, similar elements. And, and so you can say to yourself, geez, I feel like I'm getting tried for the same crime. And oftentimes in the federal system, the answer is no, it's a little bit different. So we're going to allow you to, to be charged. New York has a has a different a different rule. The Constitution of New York is, is much gives a lot more protection to individuals for double jeopardy. And so I looked at the case. I looked at what we expected the indictment to be. And and at the time, we didn't know what the district attorney was going to do. But it looked like it would potentially be a double jeopardy problem, and um, and then when he was indicted, there was no surprises, right? Like, which you know, it was a double jeopardy problem, and everybody kind of knew it. Like, you know, and David, you you, you go on TV, you you talk to the press, and you talk to the public, and try to explain complicated issues in ways that everybody can understand. And I remember watching any news, you know, whether it's a kind of a liberal bend or a conservative bend, and everybody was kind of, you know, shaking their heads, like, this seems like it could be a problem. Um, and it turns out it was. So so, so I want to talk to you a little about that. But before we get into it, just so folks, you know, are oriented, right? Can you tell us a little about who Paul Manafort was and is, and, and just generally the big picture, what the charges were? Sure. So he, Paul Manafort, a lifelong consultant, very, very successful um, in, in the area of politics and international consulting, worked for Republicans and Democrats throughout his entire life and, and had achieved just a lot of great things for all kinds of countries and governments and, and, and um, companies and individuals. And he was, he was, he was a very successful um, man and he, he was a success story. He worked he he worked for President Trump's campaign effort for a pretty brief period of time, four or five months, five or six months. So not not a long time. And and as everybody remembers, at the time there was uh, th- there were a bunch of reports that came out about improper contacts supposedly between the Trump campaign and Russia. Um, and Russia had, and Mr. Manafort had had some work with Russia over the years. And so he immediately stepped down because he didn't want to hurt President Trump's chances of, of getting elected. And and everything moves forward. The election happens. And then we all know what happens with 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 Russia and, and the Mueller report and, and, and the investigation. And it turns out they, they found that they ended up going after Mr. Manafort, not for anything involving Russia at all. But for mortgage fraud, and for and then basically mortgage fraud in kind of the traditional sense that he had not um, he, he had lied to the banks when applying for mortgages about his assets and, and, and how much money he had, and um, and then there was in D.C. some violations of of, of FARA, but there, it was a pretty complicated case and not a case I think that I think folks that even the prosecutors themselves w- would hopefully admit. That in the normal time you wouldn't indict somebody for for what he was accused of doing because the mortgages were performing, right? And what I mean by that, David, is let's assume that you get a mortgage for a house and you're not honest about how much you're worth. You get a million dollar mortgage and you say that you have a million dollars in assets, and it turns out you only have six hundred thousand in assets. Bank doesn't know it. The bank gives you the mortgage, and you're paying your mortgage every month. So have you committed a federal crime? Yeah. Yes, you have, right? You've lied to the bank about a very important question, which is your net worth. And, and that led them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do, give you the mortgage. And, and so, geez, you're, you're a criminal. But let's say you're performing on that mortgage, meaning you're making your monthly payments every month. Normally, even if the feds learn that you committed this horrible lie, it's not something they're going to spend resources doing going after you because you're paying on your mortgage, 
Right. right. I mean, it should there should be some prosecutorial discretion in what cases prosecutors bring, right? There's only a certain number of prosecutors, only a certain number of resources, only a certain number of cases they can bring. I mean, it would seem to me if 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 you're performing on the mortgage, if there's no harm, if there's no victim, maybe that's not the case that should be brought. There's other ways to deal with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And look, I don't I'm not I, I'm not speaking ill of the prosecutors and and or even of 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 what happened, I think it's 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 been so long, and and we've moved on. But certainly at the time, there was a feeling that he had gotten railroaded. Um, he had gotten you know big sentences in both. In, in he had gotten sentenced in in Virginia and in D.C., where he ultimately pled guilty. Um, and and was facing real federal time. He was an older man at the time. I think he was. I believe he was seventy or around seventy. And was looking at, at losing a big chunk of his his life because of this, um, and then on top of all that, um, he he gets in, indicted in, in New York for what amounts to be exactly the same mortgage fraud I just described. Meaning, under New York law, not surprising, they have similar laws that don't allow you to um, misstate things on mortgage applications, and and so he was indicted for that. And when I met him. When you asked about who he was or who he is, he had been in prison for a long time. He had gone through a trial, and he had, and you, you've interacted, and you've worked, and you have have, have clients and, and people that you know who have, have served time in prison. It's 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 it breaks a person, or it, it, it can it break a person. And so, I remember the first time I met him in Alexandria, Virginia, when he was in in prison. You know, you had seen the photos of him and read articles about him and seen him at the convention and speaking. And he, he was not that person. You know, he was not that person. Um, I liked him. I like him a lot. He's still a friend of mine. I, I saw him, you know, last week we got together. We talk on the phone. Um, I, from the first time I met him, I liked him. Um, but he was a, a kind of a broken man. He had been in federal prison, you know, for a long time. It's interesting, Todd, because because you were a prosecutor. And I, I'm always interested because prosecutors who become defense lawyers like you, real defense lawyers who represent real people and, and see it now from a different side. It, it is interesting, right? Because when you were a prosecutor, you don't really get to know the person you're prosecuting. You read about them. Like you say, you see them, uh, you see the bank forms or whatever it is. But when you're a defense lawyer, like this is a real person with a real family who's, who's um, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to defend on three different fronts. I think, you know, when you and I were talking before, you you when you saw him in the uh, MDC, which is one of the worst uh, jails there is. Uh, tell us a little about that. I mean, you have to meet somebody in a in a terrible place like that. Yeah, sure. So it was the MCC, which the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is is located in Lower Manhattan. And for those that 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 don't know you know where that is or, or what that's like it's it's right next to the u.s attorney's office and right next to the federal court and you can actually get to both places without going outside so it's literally connected to the federal court in manhattan and then the u.s attorney's office in manhattan and historically it's it's a very um it, it's where a lot of very very dangerous men have have been when they were waiting for trial. The terror, you know, terrorism cases in Southern District of New York, um, mob cases, you know, cases with very with, with individuals. So, so they so it has a very secure part of the of the prison where they keep individuals who who you know who pose a security risk or who they view as being you know potentially dangerous. And so it's a and it's this structure. It almost looks like an apartment building, but much much worse. So it's not what you imagine with a federal prison that's kind of a bunch of barracks spread out over acres and acres. It's just literally in lower Manhattan. It's it's closed now, by the way, but that but at the time it, it, it was not. And so what happened was so Mr. Manafort gets indicted and he has to get arraigned. So he's serving his federal prison, his federal federal prison sentence. He's in Loretto, Pennsylvania, which is about a three and a half, four hour drive from lower Manhattan. And he's going to get arraigned. He's going to get arraigned. Um, it, it was it was at some point in in June, late June, early July, twenty nineteen. So the marshals bring him to New York so he can be arraigned in state court. But he's a federal prisoner, right? Because he had been convicted in federal court, and so he's going to be housed at the MCC in Lower Manhattan. 
and and then you know like what would happen practically speaking and what did happen is the the state law enforcement would go and pick him up from federal prison across the street and drive him over you know a block or two to be arraigned but he's in he's in the MCC and they put him in that very secure area that i described david which is called 9 south and it it housed has housed you know some of the the folks that we view as some of the most dangerous people um, that that our that our justice system has ever has ever prosecuted. Um, at the time, he was there, um, and and you know later on, which I can get to in a minute. Jeffrey Epstein had, had was arrested shortly thereafter and was and was there. And then the the drug dealer, the the, the drug kingpin El Chapo, who was on trial in Brooklyn at the time. But because the, the the system that because the jail in Manhattan is so secure and can support you know that type of a of a of a defendant or an inmate, he was housed at the MCC as well. So I and when you go to visit and you've done this, David, you know, thousands of times more th- more than I have. But you go into the jail; it's very difficult to get in. It's you know it's all that all that you would expect. And what happened was. A very funny story, which I think is, I've always said it's one of the, the unique highlights of my professional life, is I, I went, after the arraignment, I went on a Sunday to visit Mr. Manafort. So he had been arraigned, and he's waiting to go back to Loretto. And I show up on a Sunday, and normally, when you go to visit an inmate in this 9 South, in the super secure area, they take you to this little interview room, and they lock you in, and you get to speak with your client. But because it was a weekend, it was a Sunday we went to the normal visiting area, but it was a secure area that day because it was, I was going to go visit Mr. Manafort. And so they had said that I could come at a particular time. And I went up and Mr. Manafort had just been arraigned and and he knew we now had a briefing schedule. We're going to talk about what we're going to do and strategize. And I was going to get him ready to go and let him know that we were going to fight for him. And, and I walked in the visiting area and there's three rooms when you walk in that, in the attorney conference area, at the MCC in lower Manhattan glass windows. So that the guards can observe what's happening and they can't hear, but they can observe. Um, and I walk in and I see Mr. Manafort right in the middle waiting for me. They had brought him in before I had arrived. Right. And to the left when I'm facing him is, is Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> sitting there oh and he, it was, he had just gotten arrested and, and he had a bail argument the very next day in front of the judge Berman, the district court judge assigned to him. And there were two lawyers there visiting with him, presumably getting ready for that, that argument. And then I looked to the right and to the right is, is El Chapo oh and, and sitting there with, sitting there with, with his, uh, a, a woman who, who was one of his you know legal team. I don't know whether she was a lawyer or a paralegal. And so I remember thinking to myself then, and I've thought to myself hundreds of times since then, this is a crazy life, right? <laughs> I mean, I went to night law school, you know, I worked during the day. I, you know, I'm, and here I am sitting in, je- in this prison on a Sunday morning. My wife went to Little Italy to wait for me so we could have lunch afterwards. And, um, and I see <laughs> El Chapo, <laughs> and then I see Mr. Epstein, and then I see Paul Manafort. And, you know, anyway, man, it was what, one what of those a, What things. a crazy, what a crazy story. And and it is true. Like, people don't realize how surreal our our job is and, and what we do. Just, just being in the jail with Manafort himself was probably surreal enough. And then you have Epstein and El Chapo bookending you. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's nuts. I, I don't think I've told this story before on, on the podcast, but I um I represented Galen Maxwell on appeal for her for her bail appeal and I went and visited her once it's at MDC in Brooklyn that's why I messed up and said MDC and and that jail's also insane and highly secure and, and and awful for reasons we can discuss at another time but you know I I went I went on a weekend also and got in there um and and because of what happened with Epstein there was a crew that followed Galen around wherever she went with a camera. 24-7, they had a handheld camera. Even when I was meeting with her in the little room, they sat outside the room with a camera. Yeah. I had never experienced anything like it. And 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 it was surreal. And and you know, it just these these stories, and and one of the reasons I like doing this podcast is because I get to speak with people like you who have these 
incredible, um, surreal stories. Yeah, it was surreal. I still think about that. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I think Mr. Manafort is, is, is a great man. I, I really do. He's, he's, a, he's a client, of course, but he, he's a friend. And, and he was going through something at the time that, you know, here he was facing seven years in federal prison. And now the district attorney in New York wants to send him to jail for even longer. And the problem with that case, David, at the risk of being Captain Obvious, is he had already been convicted of that conduct. So mounting a defense for that case had it gone to trial, um, you could have been successful, but I certainly didn't like my chances. So <laughs> it seems it seems like an uphill battle to to fight a case where where there's already a conviction. I, I have to say, you know, I, I and I wrote about this after, at at the time of his sentencing after trial. It really bothered me that the government asked for I think it was like a twenty year sentence after trial and. For someone like him on a case where there was performance on the loans and everything, it just seems so outrageous to me and such an example, like the perfect example of the trial penalty, right? Like had Manafort pled in that case and cooperated or whatever, even if he pled without cooperation, the, the government would never have asked for 20 years. It's just, it, it was a pure trial tax and it, it bothered me. And, and there were people out there saying, well, um, he went to trial and lost. What's wrong? That's what the sentencing guidelines call for. It it bothered me. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I think, and you've talked about this on your podcast a lot, going, you know, those of us that have been prosecutors, you know, I think it's hard not to lose. I think sometimes we lose perspective and I hope I, I, I have it now. You say to somebody, I'm going to offer you, let's say they're they're looking at 10 years in prison. And you say, I'll offer you five. That's a great deal. So, you know, on the one hand, that's half the time in prison. On the other hand, that's five Christmases. That's five years of their life that, that they do, get to, do not get to really interact or know their family, their friends, their loved ones. And, and so, and I remember, and there's some prosecutors that are very cavalier. I even put myself in that, where, where you would say to somebody, Look, I'm offering you an amazing deal. If you go to trial, you're going to get 10 years and I'm offering you five years. And you wonder why they don't, you know, jump up and thank you profusely. Well, it's because it's five years of their life, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's really, I, I hope I'm, you know, I, I hope that I, I, I never lose that perspective again. And, and, and now that I have it, because, you know, we see it all the time in our clients when you talk about going to jail or, or serving a term of incarceration, um, really even a few months, e even a year, two years, four years, seven years, that's a tremendous amount of time to, you know, that, that you're going to be away from your, your family and, and, and friends and loved ones. So, well, well Todd, you, you mentioned, you know, when you were a prosecutor, you were a prosecutor at what they call the sovereign district of New York or the Southern district, you know, that's what they like to, Say there, but even even those prosecutors who are—I mean, I, I recently had a case there. Really smart uh, folks. I, I, by the way, I made the mistake when I went to trial in in your district. I didn't know any better, so I, I figured I'd book a hotel at the closest hotel, and I ended up at a hotel in Chinatown, uh, <laughs> a couple blocks from the federal courthouse. I, I should have called you first because that that was a mistake. That was a mistake. It was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody laughs like you are when I tell them that story. And uh, I, I tried that case with with a friend, uh, uh, Sean Hecker, who when he first came to the hotel asked me what what the hell I was thinking uh, when I got when I booked there. Uh, uh, um, so I should have called you guys. Should have called you guys first. But but maybe what we should do because because I, I don't think it's because of any ill will or evil intentions where prosecutors say this is a great deal. I'm offering you five years instead of ten. I think it's just because they haven't represented people before, right? So, so a lot of times prosecutors are young, right out of law school or right out of a clerkship, and and they just don't have the perspective of what five years means. And so, I wonder if there's a solution. Maybe, maybe one of the things we could consider is this will never happen, of course, but having prosecutors do a year of of federal defense first or or public defense first or just representing some people first i i bet the offers would change pretty quickly if that happened i agree no i totally agree i mean you look at i, I think the military does that right there's there's a, a lot of the jag core system you, you you flip back and forth and that's not exactly aligned but but i look i i 
I was in the violent crimes unit when I was the, a, a prosecutor. And so I did mostly federal robberies and federal murder cases. And then I supervised the unit as well. And, you know, those are really, I think we would all agree, really bad crimes, especially the federal system. They're really the, the probably the worst, well, not the worst, I'll say that, but they're bad crimes. And and even there, the amount of time that that the federal sentencing guidelines, um, you know, put on a judge to make a decision about, you know, some, even if there's not a mandatory minimum, it's, it's just a tremendous amount of time, you know, and, but anyway, that's, that, I think that's for a much longer discussion, but yes, I do agree that after you, one thing is for certain, and you've probably seen this throughout your career. When, when a prosecutor leaves, like I did, you very quick, quickly get a wake up call and realize that <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah, there's another perspective out there. So. Let, let me ask you this, Todd, because I wonder if your perspective on this has changed as well. When when you know when I've dealt with prosecutors, especially in high profile cases like Manafort and and other ones, you see the government do what what you typically do not see them do, which is use the media. You know, they they're out there in the press. They're they're even working the press behind the scenes. You know, it's not just the big splashy press conference that that the U.S. attorney has, which which bothers me for different reasons, but they're working the media, uh, leaking things. Should, should we be concerned about how the U.S. attorney's offices and DOJ are using the press in those kinds of cases? And, and is there anything we can do about it? I mean, yes. I mean, I don't know what you can do about it, but I'm kind of new to this, you know, highly publicized case over the past few years. And when you see something leaked, it, 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 no matter who's leaking, it's not always the government either. It, it's sometimes defense attorneys who maybe represent a witness or who heard something in a meeting. So it's definitely not, you know, always the, the Department of Justice, but it's usually not accurate. It's usually kind of accurate, right? And and so and and there's a lot of ways that you can express or tell information to a reporter, and then the reporter reports it in a way that I think will probably benefit her story or benefit. Um, whatever narrative, I'm not, even if they have a very flat narrative and they're not, they just want to report something, they're still, their job is to, is to, is to have folks read what they write and be interested in what they write. And it's very difficult now because most courts, including the Southern District of Florida and the Southern District of New York have rules that really prevent the parties from talking about the case after there's been charges. And so you talked about a flashy press conference. There's a, an argument that that's inconsistent with a lot of local rules. And, and you and I are, are sometimes handcuffed in what we're supposed to or allowed to say to the media in ways that the government is not. And unfortunately, we live in a society where folks sometimes do judge judge a case based upon what they hear right out of the box. And I don't know what to do about it. But if you have any ideas, I'm all yours because it's a, it's it's definitely a problem. Right. I mean, I think it is hard to do, deal with the leaks. That That's something that's going to always be difficult to deal with. But I do think that the, the press conference at the beginning, if prosecutors are going to do it, a defense lawyer has to be able to respond. It, it, it is odd to me that that the rules have, as you say, sort of handcuffed the defense a lot more than the government. To me, that's that's a problem because the government comes out and we, we saw it with a speaking indictment, you know, a press conference with a speaking indictment. It puts the defense at a huge disadvantage. We don't have an answer like they do in civil court. We don't yeah. get a a speaking response. So the only way to yeah. respond is by going by speaking, and and we get we get sometimes in trouble for that. What what about um, what about cameras in the courtroom? I don't know how it is with with was with uh, state court with Manafort. Were there cameras in the court in state court in New York? So in New York, they're they're unique. So as everybody knows, hopefully, or if not. You know, in the federal system, cameras are not allowed. So, in the state system, it's, it depends on the state. And 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 in New York, you're the the, the laws allow. And I, I might get this slightly off, so forgive me those who are smarter than me on this issue. But the law the law allow cameras in the courtroom at certain times, like for the arraignment, and I believe for the disposition, so the guilty plea. It, but it's really up to the judge's discretion, and many judges don't allow them in, or they maybe will allow three reporters with cameras or some some accommodation, but not uh, thousands of cameras. So it's it's funny with with Mr. Manafort, and then I'll, I'll talk about actually President Trump for a minute too, because it's a, it's a comparison that's worth talking about. So the judge in, in Mr. Manafort's case said no cameras in the courtroom, but they're allowed in the hallway. 
Okay. So while on the one hand, that's amazing that they're not going to be snapping photos of Mr. Manafort, you know, sitting in court, they did a perp walk. So they brought Mr. Manafort out from this hallway way, way down at the other end of the room of, of the of before where the courthouse, where the courtroom was. And it was lined with reporters and, and, and members of the public, none of whom were supporting him. Zero. And so everybody, he was called more names in that, you know, 45 second walk than I had ever heard an individual called in my life. And the reporters, and I mean, there were cameras and pictures. And so that's not the fix either, right? Like you shouldn't kind of, and it really is just humiliation, right? That's not, the public doesn't have a need or a right Right. to, to see somebody humiliated like that. So the judge in that case, I think was trying to do the right thing and said no cameras in the courtroom, but you know, the, the, the rules there allow cameras in the hallways. And, um, and then with, with, with president Trump, the same thing happened. So in theory, cameras would be allowed for the arraignment. Um, the, the press applied and said, we want to have cameras in there. And the, and, and what was struck there by the judge is that there would be cameras allowed in to take photos for a few minutes before the proceedings started. You're talking about in state court, in state court in New York now. In state court in New York. Totally. Every court I believe has its own rules. So, and then, so that's what happened. So before the judge took the bench, cameras were allowed in took photos of, of, of us and President Trump and the, the, the government and the people. And, and then during the proceeding itself, there were no cameras. Um, then when President Trump was arraigned in your district, in the subject of Florida, there was another application that said, can we please bring cameras in the courtroom or in the courthouse? And the judge you know, didn't, did not grant that application, which isn't unusual. It's not something that happens in, in federal court. I don't know what you think about it, David. Like, I go both ways. Like on the one hand, we do live in a country that you're allowed to have public access and courtrooms shouldn't be sealed. I think we we want the public to know what's happening. On the other hand, I, I do worry that if there's cameras that witnesses and, and even lawyers might say or do things differently that, that doesn't further the process. I don't know. I don't know what your yeah. views are. On. No, I, I, I've talked a lot about this. I, I think there should be cameras in the courtroom, especially in a case like like yours in the Trump case, because I think the public has a right to see what's going on. I think, by the way, and I think it would help because there's such misinformation out there um, about the proceedings and about what's happening. And I think we'd get rid of a lot of it if we had cameras and and you know for example with with your arraignment like i don't think judge goodman would have done anything differently had there been cameras i don't think you all would have acted any differently and i think i think it would have been good for the public to see what happened i think by the way it 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 might benefit the defendant in in a lot of cases i think people are worried that it would hurt the defendant and you know that idea of the perp walk just drives me bananas how they use that and it reminds yeah. me of uh you know the game of thrones like shame 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 walking down yeah it's exactly that's a very good analogy it's exactly what it was like it was game of thrones dead on dead on right right so so you know i i think there should be cameras i i wonder what the clients would think of it um your your current client might like it some others may not i don't i don't know um but but i yeah. I, I think i think it it would probably benefit um the public but, but so so turning back to to Manafort for a second so you obviously get this motion um filed and and lots of folks seem to actually support it which which you know you must have been a little surprised at least because of of everything that had gone on to date yes i was for sure and look i had these rock star um lawyers who work with me at Kidwallader who who did the writing right to, to i guess to you know to make me look good and, and we did it together and and there it was a really complicated brief and there were a lot of open issues because the jury had hung in the east district of virginia the jury had hung on several counts and so and then at sentencing like what often happens th- those counts are dismissed right so are they dismissed with prejudice or without prejudice and then maybe the judge says something that suggests it's with prejudice but doesn't affirmatively say it and then the I think the judgment had been had a box check that suggested it was the opposite. And so it wasn't, it, it was a very, it was a typical kind of, you know, nothing is perfect in, in, in our jobs. And, and we put together a brief and, and I thought it was really good. I mean, I didn't think there was really an alternative, but, but on the other hand, 
we very rarely win briefs in motions yeah. to dismiss indictments, right? I mean, the white collar bar, as we all have talked about, and you talked about this, you know, on the show, we usually lose, right? Or we call victories things that maybe aren't really victories, you know? <laughs> true. And it's so, true. and look, the people, the prosecutors from the, 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 the New York folks were, were very courteous and professional, and, and I, I, I don't have anything bad to say about them. Um, they put their brief in, and and the judge, Judge Wiley, had scheduled a date in December where he was going to issue a decision, which is his practice. That's what he does, you know, apparently, or that's what I've been told he does. And so Mr. Manafort's going to come back in December. You know, everybody thinks it's to hear it's been denied. Let's set a trial date. And he just doesn't show up. And so as, as, as criminal defense attorneys who are listening to this know, you often have no idea what's happening with prisoner transports and where your client is and, and why he's not showing up or what were. And, and he just wasn't showing up. And for a while, for several days, I didn't know where he was. And it sounds funny to say that, but I had talked to him almost every day in, in Loretto or very frequently about what was going on and next steps and getting the decision. And he just dropped off the face of the earth that nobody would tell me anything. And, um, He's supposed to be in New York to get this decision, which we think we're going to lose. And he's not in New York, but I don't know where he is. He's not a Loretto either. And so it turns out, just to jump ahead, he he had had a health issue and had been taken to the hospital. And when they take somebody to the hospital that's that's a federal inmate, they don't tell the world because they don't want you know something to happen with security. So they were intentionally not telling anybody anything. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a call from a reporter. And the reporter said to me, do you know anything about where your client is? I said, no, I have no idea. Do you? And the reporter said, yep, I do. I have a leak that tells me that your client's in the hospital and is totally fine, but is, but is in the hospital is not coming to court. And, uh, so anyway, so to make a long story short, the judge says, I still want to have it. Even though, even though Mr. Manafort can't show up, I still want you guys to show up. And we walk in and it was one of those freaking really surreal moments that we that we experience in, in as, as litigators where the judge had left copies of his opinion on the table where we would all go and sit down we were called up and it was filled with kind of reporters and is state court so it's very noisy and of course all you do is you race to the very last page to see what the decision was <laughs> and i see the da's doing the same thing and it says you know the motion is dismissed you know, motion granted and the, the the indictment is dismissed and I didn't know what to say, right? Because you don't, I just did not say. <laughs> and Judge Wiley, a really nice guy, and you know, he has a great reputation, putting aside with you know his decision in this case. Everybody, when we got assigned him every, to a person, everybody said, you know, he was, he, was, he was a fair judge and everything else. He I don't remember the exact words, but he said something like, Well, that's my decision. I don't think there's anything else to tell you. Know, there wasn't <laughs> what else do you do? The dive is dismissed. You know, it's over. <laughs> and you didn't, your, your client wasn't even there, so you could tell. No, so, how, how, do, how, do, how do you get in touch with them? How do you tell them? So, I go back, and at this point, I knew that he had been at prison. So, I, someone, I'm sorry, in the hospital, someone had leaked it to me. So, I had found out that he had returned to Loretto. He was okay. It was a, a health scare that was nothing. And they put him on the phone with me, and he had gotten back to prison. And apparently inmates were like literally giving him standing ovations oh, because awesome. he had won. And so he already knew when I called him, but he was obviously extraordinarily emotional. Um, he did hope that President Trump would pardon him. And so this really was a, a very important part of the process because if he got pardoned but was still doing state time, it's hardly, you know, the pardon is almost irrelevant. It's just for the, the federal crimes. Anyway, it was pretty incredible. And then, this, you know, the people appealed uh, to the first department. And so we argued that and and we won, you know, unanimous. It really wasn't a close case, David. Like people say to me, you're a genius for winning that case. And I say two things. One, my rock star colleagues wrote the brief. And two, it was a per se violation of the Constitution of the state of New York. So I, I hear you. I hear you. But let me, as you said before, any any win for a criminal defendant, especially pre-trial, is so incredible, Todd. And and you should savor it and embrace it because, as you know, it's so rare and amazing. Yeah. So, so congratulations. And and you mentioned uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is the pardon. So so eventually, um, 
President Trump pardons Manafort and and he's and he gets out. How much time did he do? So he ended up doing a couple of years. What happened in the middle of all that was, of course, COVID. Mm. And he was very high risk because of his age primarily, but his, some other health issues. And so we were able to, um, and by the way, he had a lot of, I don't want to say friends, but he had a lot of folks within the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons that, that didn't feel that he had gotten a fair shake. And I don't know whether that's fair or not, but it happens to be um, the truth. Um, and so we had we had gotten the BOP to, to release him to his home pretty early. I think COVID really shut us down in March. By May, Mr. Manafort was, was home in Virginia because of COVID, which was great for him because remarkably, as you recall at the time, these prisons, the inmates were saying, we got to get out now in case there's an outbreak. And the government was saying, there's no outbreak. So what are you saying that for? And so that's what, that was, that was an issue we dealt with in Loretto. After he left, there was a major COVID outbreak in Loretto and it was rampant and it was horrible. And so thank God, you know, he, he was released when he was to home confinement. So he had been on home confinement so he ultimately did, I think, two years, maybe, maybe a little more than two years. I don't remember exactly. And then he was home. And then, and then when when the election results came in, there was a lot of discussion about when he would get pardoned. And we were talking to folks, and nobody really knew. You know, it's a very powerful, um, it's it's a very powerful option for one person in this country, which is the president. And and so. We we found out. I found out the morning it was happening again from a reporter <laughs> who called me and said that he, you know that Paul Manafort's on the list and the president's going to pardon him today. And I, I remember calling Paul and telling him that. And and he, you know, I think to this day maybe he'll listen to this and learn the truth. Um, thinks that I had some incredible source at the White House, like I was really plugged in. I was not. I was not plugged in, you know, I just had a reporters who were and, and, and so, and then he was pardoned. Right. And then it's, it's over. And it's, it's, it's really, he ended up getting his property back that had been seized, not all of it, but a, a lot of it. And, and so his life was not restored in any way, shape or form, but it, it, he did recover a little bit of what he had lost during that process. And, um, so it was a very fulfilling, you know, putting aside whether the folks listening here like the guy or don't like the guy. Right. As far as it goes, for those of us that do this for a living, it was a very successful and fulfilling effort. It, it is interesting that you say that, Todd, because I, I will say the political cases where you represent a, a client that is, you know, has one political bent or another, you get more hate mail, hate comments. Than, than if you represent a, a, a violent totally. criminal or totally. or or uh, anybody, I mean, you get the political stuff these days draws more um, animosity and hatred. It's 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 too bad that that's the way it is, and and yeah. I'm sure you're going through a lot of that now. Yes, um, yes, which, which which is difficult, and and the criminal defense bar owes it uh, owes it to you to to commend you for for. Uh, being a true criminal defense lawyer and and dealing with all that because it's not easy. Let let me ask you one one last thing while I got you, and I don't even know if you can talk about this or not. But is is the Manafort case how you ended up uh, in your current position representing uh, the former president? A little bit. So I, you know, after I represented Mr. Manafort, I, I, I had an opportunity to represent Igor Fruman, who was one of the folks along with Lev Parnas who were, you know, were associated with Rudy Giuliani and, and they were charged um, that they, they were famously arrested right before they boarded a flight at Dulles airport to go to overseas. And, and, and that was a, a, another very politically charged um, prosecution. I, I'm not saying politically charged in a way that is derogatory towards the, the feds, just it was politically charged without a doubt as the public viewed it as such. And, and it led in at least loosely led to, the impeachment proceedings against Trump, or at least it was part of it. And, and so I had a fair amount of, 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 you know, publicity for lack of a better word from that representation. And then, and so that happened. And then about a year ago, not quite a year ago, 10 months ago, I started representing um, Boris Epstein. And so he, he is obviously a very close, um, very closely, he works with President Trump 
daily. He's one of his lawyers and and, and a consultant for him. And, and, and so it was through that representation, but also Mr. Manafort, you know, that, that led to me having the opportunity to represent um, President Trump. I, I know, I don't, you know, I know that there was a lot of due diligence done by folks about me that included talking to Mr. Manafort and others about, about that experience. And so, yes, I think for sure, that's what, that's what allowed me to do, to do what I'm doing now. And, and, you know, it's, it's a very extremely challenging case for reasons that everybody should, should probably appreciate. But I also, you know, it's also really historic, you know, not only the, the case in Miami, but the state case as well, you know, where you have a district attorney indicting, you know, a former president of the United States that has never, ever happened before. And so being part of something where most of your briefing or most of your arguments at some point you're saying to the judge, this has never happened before. Right. And, and it's true. It hasn't, that is, is a very kind of, I, I don't know, like, if, if, what are you doing this for? <laughs> if you don't want to do something like that, you know? Um, so. Well, well, you're handling it with grace and it, it's not easy. I know you must be bombarded with, with uh, all kinds of stuff. So, so um, keep up the fight. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. It was great, Todd. I, I I don't know if you remember, we met, you know, years ago at one of these conferences at, yes. at the forum. And, uh, and it's great to see how successful and how great you're doing now. So I, I thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much, David. And I'll say that, as I said to you, uh, when we first talked about this, I, I don't talk about my career and my life. But but there was one place when I readily said yes to, and that was to, to be able to, to hang out with you for an hour. So th- thank you, and um, and it, it was great. That was really cool. You can tell Todd is just a really nice guy, good guy, and it's not hard to understand why he's getting some of the biggest, most important cases out there right now. I'm very thankful that he sat down with me to do this interview. He, You can imagine he's underwater, swamped with representing the former president in two different cases, both in New York and Miami and possibly other cases to come. So I want to thank Todd for being on the show and for spending some time with me discussing his representation of Paul Manafort and other cases. And we'll be back next week on July 4th with Jerry Lefcourt, another New York legend. So thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Todd Blanche in For the Defense.